Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Rajiv. Good to have you on the show. Yeah, hi, Jeremy. Thanks a lot for inviting me. So I'm excited to hear about your thoughts on consumer research and how you are tackling it from a startup perspective. So for those who don't know you yet, could you introduce yourself? Uh, sure. You already mentioned my name, but I'll just say my name again. My name is Rajiv Lamba. I'm based in Singapore. I run a startup called Neurosensum, which we started in 2018. I already done one, my first exit in 2017, where I was a shareholder in a, in a research firm called Cadence International. So in 2018, when we started Neurosensum, it, we started as a neuroscience-based consulting, which is to be able to read the subconscious mind of consumers. What they don't say is what we, we started uh, understanding through our brain mapping eye-tracking, facial coding methodologies. And over time, we launched one more brand uh, called Service Sensum. So people who cannot afford consulting services, those who want faster risk consumer responses, real-time consumer responses. That's where we launched our product uh, called Service Sensum, which is a SaaS, which is software as a service. Awesome. That's great. And here you are today. How did you start becoming a founder? Yes, I think see, it, it goes back to 2011, when I left Nielsen, I, I've been in the consumer research for more than 15, or I'll say 17 years by now. So in 2011, I left Nielsen to join a small boutique market consulting firm called Cadence International. That was my first experience of a startup. So I expanded the, the company in Indonesia, I started Vietnam as well as Middle East. And 2017, I exited. So I already tasted how a startup looks like, how to scale a startup. In 2018, I left that company because of my, my concept was to bring technology in the field of consumer research. And that's where we started Neurosensum as well as Service Sensum, two brands within our portfolio. Let's zoom in on that. So did you always want to be an entrepreneur and founder, even back in Nielsen? Or was it something that you just made a decision later on? How did that happen? Yeah. At that time, there was no thought of becoming an entrepreneur or a founder. I think it just happened that one of my friends who was running Cadence International in Indonesia he invited me to, to join the firm. And just that, that I knew him and uh, I trusted him a lot. You know, at, at that time, I was, I was very young. I was like 31 years. So I thought, why not to give it a try? Uh, let's see how it is like working in a smaller company. And that's how my journey of entrepreneurship started. And over time, I learned a lot in the last 10, 11 years. And it has been a beautiful journey of, of entrepreneurship. What did you find was the difference between, say, working at a company like Nielsen, which is a very brand name, large company perspective, to really taking on the other side, which is very much about looking at the same field, but from a startup angle? What did you have to learn and what did you have to unlearn? So I think that there are two or three things which helps you when you work in a big, big organization like Nielsen. The first uh, big thing is that everybody knows the name. So it's, it's not difficult to get business. Like, for example, you know, nobody gets fired choosing IBM, right? That's a classic thing. So when you work in a very big organization, it's relatively easy to pull in revenue. It's relatively easy to get business. And of course, the processes are set. You don't have to worry about setting up a finance team, HR team, operations team, and so on and so forth. But from Nielsen days when I went to Cadence, it was a very different story from a very big organization to a very small organization. So there I learned about uh, setting up the finance departments, putting 
a lot of time putting a sales hat, developing the business, creating team at the same time. So I think the big difference was uh, that you have to kind of wear multiple hats at the same time. You learn how to multitask. You read a lot, you learn a lot, you mingle with more people, you need to work with more people. So that's the, that's a big difference that I saw working in a big organization versus a smaller organization. So what did you have to learn in order to sell better? What did I have to learn in order to sell better? That's a very interesting question. I think a lot of things. You have to learn of how uh, to pitch yourself as a differentiated company. So when you go to, to clients, I'll say, you know, your first five minutes, not even five minutes, your first one minute makes a big difference. How are you different from a big organization? Why I should choose you? Why should I even talk to you? So I think your pitching becomes much more sharper when you work in a smaller organization. So that's something I had to learn. I had to learn that there's no big brand behind my back. So I had to learn that I have to kind of go and build my own story of products, of people, of tools that I've created or that I'm creating and how we are changing the way things, they, they work differently. So that is something I think I, I'll say I had to learn a lot. Second element was to learn about which is setting up systems as your startup moves up to the next level. What is the function of HR department? Setting KPIs for HR department, building up a finance team, looking at lot of financial angles, evaluating your own cash flows, balance sheets, PNL, cash is king. That's something I learned a lot during the startup time. So setting up the processes, setting up teams is something that I had to really learn. Multitasking is I had to learn a lot. So while in Nielsen, I was focusing on one, one area, but suddenly when I went to a startup, I had to kind of wear multiple hats at the same time that I mentioned. So those are things that I have to re- learn and, and you have to learn very fast. You don't have time. Uh, you don't have a window of two or three years to learn. You have to learn everything with, as you go on and within three or six months, you have to learn a lot. It is an interesting one because I remember I used to be a bean and so the brand could sell itself, right? You walk into a meeting and you're like, oh, I'm a bean consultant. Everyone's like, okay, this guy is probably smart and knows what he's talking about because the brand is there. I guess what advice do you have for founders who are thinking about sales without a brand? I think my advice to founders without when who are telling you trying to sell something to a customer without the brand name is to think of a differentiation. Think of a story. What makes your story compelling? Why I should buy from you? How are you differentiated from other big brands? Why I should believe you? So that story, I believe, makes a big difference. And the more you practice that story, uh, how you can crystallize that story in, in less than 30 seconds. You know, people call it as an elevator pitch. So that is something I'll, I'll tell a lot of founders to practice. I also tell the same thing to my team members when they join from the big organizations. How can you sell your story? How can you know your product well? And how can you sell your story in 30 seconds? So that is something that I, I'll advise to, to a lot of entrepreneurs. That's an interesting part of the problem, which is that how do you find that story that you can pitch within the first, like say, one minute earlier? And differentiation. How should a founder think about that story? Is that practice? Is it writing it down? How do you think about it? Okay, I'll tell you the way I thought about it. I think, of course, I've written down my own story. So whether we go to an investor to pitch or you go to a client to pitch, in the initial days, I have to write down my story. I should do a lot of practice. And of course, you know, you read a lot of books and you come up with better stories. You, practice, you can practice those stories with your friends. They can give you that feedback. You can practice those, that story with your current clients. Some of the customers that you've got to see how compelling is that story. So there are multiple ways you can write it down. You can practice with your colleagues, with your friends, with your some of the clients. There are multiple ways that you can do it. But this is the way that I did it. It's not that my story got perfected in day one. Even during neuroscience days, when I started in 2018, 
it took me two or three months to perfect my story. That what is neurosensum? Can I explain that to you in 10 seconds? What is service sensum? Can I explain that to you in 10 or 20 seconds? So that took a lot of time and practice. What have been some interesting sales stories you had in selling either service sensum or neurosensum? See, okay, for example, let's, let's take an example, service sensum. My interesting story of service sensum is, thankfully, because I've been in the industry, I know the pain point. When I went to client to sell service sensum, my story is, if you have to get consumer insights, how many issues do you have at hand right now? They might say, I've got 10 issues at hand. For how many issues you can go to a consulting company? Only one. Why? Because consulting is expensive. So what do you do for the remaining nine issues that you've got? I use gut feel. How about if I give you a platform where you don't have to use a gut feel? The platform can help you to get responses on a real-time basis at a much affordable price. So consulting, if you're paying X dollar with a platform, you just need to pay 10% of that X dollar. Does it help you? Yeah, yeah, it sounds good. So that's where immediately a demo comes out. This is how you can do it or I can do it for you at 10% of the consulting cost. And that's the way my story has built up over time. So that's one way of doing it. Second way that I did for service and some because from the world of unichannel, it moved to omnichannel because every customer is omnichannel. Are you able to get your feedback from your customers on your website? Are you able to get the feedback from the app? Are you able to get the feedback using a QR code? You've got so much of customer database in your CRM. Are you able to collect feedback from your customers? Most of the time, the answer is no because not everybody is utilizing omnichannel tools. How about if I give you a platform where you can plug my platform to all the channels? And the moment somebody comes to your website, you can ask a survey. The moment somebody comes to a chatbot, you can ask a survey. The moment somebody comes to an app, you can ask a survey. The moment somebody goes to your branch, a survey can go to a customer. And you can look at that entire feedback real time. So that's story number two, which is the only channel customer feedback story. And so what I'm curious about is, You've done both uh, Neurosensum and Surface Sensum. So can you tell us about what led you to build one and then the other? Yeah, sure. So it has been a very interesting journey also, Jeremy. So when we started the consulting company, the concept of Neurosensum was to read the subconscious mind. The simple reason was because when you ask consumers in Southeast Asia, do you like my product? Do you like my ad? They will normally tell you a very polite answer on the face. They will never say that it's not good. You know, That's the culture of Southeast Asia. So the idea with Neurosensum was, was, can I go beyond what consumers claim? Because they always claim everything, you know, on a scale of one to five, they say four or five, which is good or very good. Can I read their brain signals? Can I read what they're thinking? So that's how the Neurosensum concept came in. And when we were pitching to the clients, they liked it, they started buying it. But a lot of these clients, they started asking, but you know, Rajiv, can you create something which also works in the native languages in Southeast Asia? Well, if I don't have the money to go to you for consulting, but I still need the research. I still need the consumer feedback because my budget is limited. Can you create something to get the consumer feedback? So of course, there are likes of many, many platforms around there. But what consumers, what our clients wanted was something in the native languages, which means I can create service in Bahasa Indonesia. But when consumers reply back in Bahasa Indonesia, the algorithm should be able to read the entire textual data. That's where the AI element comes in, which is the local NLP. So that's how the service system came into picture. Then we saw a big need of clients doing it by themselves. They're able to plug in to multiple platforms. The entire service which happens in Bahasa, Indonesia, the platform is able to read the entire textual data. We call it a text and sentiment analysis. So that's how the shape of from Neurosensum, we started with Neurosensum and that's how Service Sensum came into picture. Where I'll say my, my, some of my clients have been very generous to give me a lot of feedback 
and they are the one who helped me to design service and so on. Uh, so they helped me to design almost the entire platform, right from building a survey to collecting the feedback to the entire AI engine. Yeah, I think that's really important, and it's nice to see that you're working off the customer feedback here. So what's interesting here is as you're building these two approaches, as you're thinking about it, how do you have your day? How does your day work out? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, it's interesting. But so sometimes I have to juggle between both the brands. Thankfully, that you know I came from a consulting background. So building Neurosensor was not that tough for me because it is, at the end of the day, a consulting business. The only difference was that it was a neuro-based consulting where to kind of involve the neuroscientists, hire them. But then building the team was relatively easy because I have done that before as a consulting. So I knew what kind of people I can hire. I knew what kind of structure I can build. It became profitable for us within six months of that 2018, you know, back those days. But with Service Sensor, it took time because I have ne- I never created SaaS before. So Service Sensor, which is a software as a service, that's where I had to learn a lot. I had to interview a lot of people. I had to get a lot of mentorship. I had to network a lot. Building up the entire tech team, digital marketing team to get the lead generation. That took a bit of time, Jeremy, to learn about different domains, right from what a, a tech team does to what a data scientist does, what a digital marketing team does, what is the customer success team, what should be their KPIs. So that took a lot of time for me to learn as well as build as was, I was learning. Yeah, that's an interesting transition for many founders from the consulting dynamic to building up and saying like, this is a problem that we can solve in a more structured manner and building out that SaaS approach from the consulting side. How did you go about learning how to build this new approach? A lot of learning to me has always come by doing. So when I was developing Service Sensum, uh, so what I did, I, I set up the Neurosensum team in Indonesia. And then after that, I went to India for five or six months. That was again in 2018. Because I wanted to build the tech office in India. That's where I interviewed a lot of people from India. As you know, there are many, many startups from India who are selling into US. So I started looking at these startups who are selling into US or other markets. I started interviewing tech people. I started interviewing data scientists. So once I did more and more interviews, that's why I learned how a SaaS product is developed and how a SaaS product is scaled. So it was all about reading a lot of books, growth hacking, plus multiple SaaS books based on products. I read a lot of those, uh, listened to a lot of podcasts, uh, plus did a lot of interviews, which helped me to learn. And my learning became much faster because I was doing multiple things at the same time. And I think I, at the same time, I was lucky that I got the right team to lead for Neurosensum Indonesia business so that I could spend a lot of time in India to build up the entire tech office. Any challenges in reskilling us in this side from a consulting dynamic to being a SaaS builder? Yeah, of course. I think challenges, I'll, I'll say the challenges were enormous. Uh, right from building the product itself, it was challenging. Plus testing it with the clients, it was challenging. Getting the feedback from the client to refine the product was always challenging. So I, I did not go into scaling right from day one. I think what I learned is that once your product is perfected, you should have at least 20 to 25 good use cases before you even think of scaling up. I think, to me, the biggest challenge, Jeremy, of scaling up service and so was finding the right market. I think initially what I did in 2019, I made this mistake of going to SMEs with service and so And suddenly I realized there are, any other, there are many other players in that category. You know, SurveyMonkey is there, Typeform is there, Google Form is there. So when I went to SMEs, I realized that too much of burn, very less earn, especially in our market. From there, my approach changed and in late 2019, I started going to the larger enterprises. So going to larger enterprises is a slightly different ballgame from a digital marketing perspective versus going to the SMEs. 
But that is where there's a big transition happened in terms of go-to-market strategy plus product changes. So like SME requirements, you can go with a very, very basic product, but with the large enterprises, you have to have multiple more features as you're competing with other companies out there. But that's where I found that in our Southeast Asia market, the revenues are far more bigger. It takes time to convert them, of course. But once you convert them, you you kind of convert big. So it's not only the user base that I was after. I was only, also after revenues, top lines, as well as profitable growth. So these are some of the challenges that we face while creating a product to, to go to market, which was completely different in 2019 versus 20. Going to SME is very different to going to the larger enterprises. And that's why we have to adjust, make a lot of changes in our product, make a lot of changes in our sales strategy as well as marketing strategy. Could you tell us about a time where you had to choose to be brave? Time where I have to choose to be brave, I think it goes back to 2011. I was in, in Nielsen. The life was going good. I created a good name in the organization. But from those days, from a Nielsen comfort zone, I'll call myself at that time, to move to a very small boutique called Cadence International, that was a big decision for me. I didn't know how to run a boutique. I didn't know how I can be successful in that boutique. And leaving a good comfort zone to go to a startup where I had to learn everything. You know, I have to kind of wear multiple hats, uh, right from being a salesperson to being an HR person, finance person, you name it. So that was a big, big move that I did in my life. And I think that was possibly a brave decision at that point of time. Yeah. And second brave decision possibly was I could have chosen to be in Cadence after we sold the company. I was a very good paid CEO at that time. Again, second point was where I started Neurosensor. Possibly, I think it has just gone into the blood now that you, know, you want to create something new and different. You always want to make an impact. And I wanted to change the way market research happens. I wanted to bring technology. So that was, I think, second brave move in my life, if you ask me. How did you make that first decision to leave Nielsen? Because you say it was tough, it was brave. How did you go about making a decision? Did you write it down? Did you talk to your friends, family? How did you go about making a decision? I talked to multiple people. I talked to my friends. I talked to my family. I talked to my immediate boss also at that time. So I asked her, you know, what she thinks. And she said, you know, you're, you're young. At that time, I was 31 years. So she said, yeah, it might be a risk worth taking. You don't know where it's going to land up. So it's a risk worth taking. She convinced me a lot. To tell you very honestly, you know, if I would have talked to 20 people, 18 of them, they would have said no. Only two said yes. One was my immediate senior. And second is my wife. So she supported me. So if you look, think about it, 90% of the people said no, 10% of people said yes. But I think that's the life journey is all about when it want to take risk. Uh, not everybody will be, will be there with you when you want to take risk. And thankfully, I think I took the right decision at that time. I listened to these 10% of the people and, and took a decision which uh, I really feel that after I took a good decision at that point of time in my life. That's a really interesting two people. I mean, normally the wife... You know, sometimes they say yes, sometimes they say no, but your boss. So I got asked about a boss first. <laughs> <laughs> Would you recommend that people who are thinking about leaving the company to do a startup of their own or whatever it is, talk to their boss about it? Why not? I think if, if the boss is charismatic, I had a very good boss. If you feel that you're close to your boss and your boss itself is a risk taker and your boss has an ability to see the future. So my boss was, was somebody like that. So if you have got a boss that you can relate with, please go ahead. And talk to your boss if you think that you can get a good opinion. I think I was very comfortable talking about this. And thankfully, I got a good advice at that time. What was that like? I mean, what was the conversation like? You got to tell us. What was in the office? You had to like, you know, walk us through it. So the conversation was, I went to my boss one day. I said, I've got a very decent offer, not in terms of the money, 
I'm getting a shareholding option in a very small startup. Do you think that I should join? It's in the field of market research. And my boss asked me why I want to leave. I said, I'm just, I feel that I'm getting too much into my comfort zone. I want to try new things. I want to rise up the ladder faster. And within, if I stay within organization, then I will move very slowly. I wanted to get to the, to the top of the curve faster. And she said, you know, possibly if you stay in a, in a situation like this, it will take you a lot of time. But there are a lot of layers to, to move up. At that point of time, you know, I asked her what she thinks. Of course, then, then I, I discussed with her the pros and cons. We sat down over a coffee. I still remember that day where we were having a coffee together. So I told her pros versus cons. And when we, looked, when we did pro versus cons, she convinced me. She said, you know, you're very young. You don't have too much of family responsibility. My kid at that time was only, only one year. And when we weighed the options, she said, you know, worth taking a risk. Just go ahead. And, and see, possibly, you know, it, it might come out to be the best decision you have taken in your life. Yeah, and that's how it, it happened, Jeremy. So I think I, I was lucky that I listened to her advice and she told me to take risk. The only disadvantage at that point of time, which I think was a big con, because the world of startup was not known as startup. So you could not get funding from VCs. Unlike today, where we can get funding through VCs if your product is innovative. At that time, we had to kind of generate our own cash and some, sometimes be dependent on banks to give us loans. There was no fintech kind of companies to give you loans. There was no VCs. So that was a big, big disadvantage. How do we grow the company? But yeah, luckily, I think everything turned, turned to good. I think if you have a lot of self-belief and faith, anything that you do, you can, you can make it a big success. <laughs> I'm laughing because do you think you as a boss, if you're a boss at Nielsen, would you tell your, I guess, subordinate or teammate that they should do a startup? <laughs> because, because that way you lose your employee, right? <laughs> I did that even in my previous company. So I remember one of, one of the individuals said, boss, I want to start my own firm. Can I just go ahead? And even, even in Neurosense, one of the employees came to me in 2019. He said, I've learned a lot here. I want to do my own startup. Can I go ahead? I, I, I encouraged. I said, why not? It's not that the entire right of startup lies with me. If you're working in a startup company, if you think that you're learned, you think that you can grow the company yourself, you want to take risks, I advise my employees, if they want to go take risk, go out there and take risk. Why not? Even in my last 10 years, in my own two startups, I would have at least advised three people because they came to me to ask me and I said, yes, go ahead if you think so. But my advice was, be very clear of what you want to build. Be very clear what differentiation that you want to build, how you're going to change things. Just be, becoming a copy is not going to help you. Adding something new and different is, is something you need to think. I mean, Cutting a price, you can only cut to a price to a level. But what elements that you add beyond affordability is something that, that I encourage my team also to think about. And what's interesting, of course, is that you also talk to your wife about it. So that's a very common thing I hear, which is that everybody goes to their husband or wife to have that conversation. So how would you recommend founders think about approaching that conversation? <laughs> Uh, another interesting question. I think it depends how comfortable you are with your partner and how your partner perceives risk-taking. Both of us, me and my wife, we never came from an entrepreneurship background, but she has never stopped me to take risk. I think you have to kind of tell your partner, take your partner into confidence that if the risk... But again, I think I told her very clearly that this risk is for two years. For two years, possibly, we have to leave our savings. We have to cut down our expenses. And I remember when I went from Nielsen to Cadence, I had to be really cautious of my expenses at that time. So I said, you know, for the next two years, we have to really be cautious of our expenses. We have to cut down our expenses. 
and we have to almost live as if we have only a limited money to survive that day. So I took her into confidence. She understood that, you know, I want to do something big in my life. And thankfully, she was with me to take the risk at least for two years. But I said, if nothing works out, I'll, I'll think of going back to the bigger organization, which I was very confident that I can always get a job. And most of the startup founders, I believe, are, are similar. So thankfully, I think to me, it worked in my favor. I didn't have to wait for two years. I think the moment I stepped in within six months, we were generating good cash. We, we were profitable as a company. But when I moved from Cadence to Neurosensor, it was tough because by the time I left Cadence, my salary was very, very good. One of the best paid CEO, I believe, in, in Indonesian market research because I grew the company so well. From there, again, going back to zero, of course, I, I had my cash payout from my shareholding. But from a salary to go back to zero again, it was again required again another round of conviction. But this time, it was not that difficult to convince because we had the money in the bank to survive for next three, four years without any paycheck. Again, at every point of time, you have to kind of convince yourself plus your partner on the same thing. But that was my way of convincing. And what's it like because you also talk about family and building a family as well. So what are some of the dynamics around that? So when you say building a family, of course, I think, you know, how many kids you want to have is the biggest decision that you have to take. So to, to us, we wanted to have a daughter, but we wanted to ensure that we give her the best quality education that we can. So as, a, as an individual, I never wanted to have three kids, not to be able to f- afford a great quality education. So we thought that we just want to have one kid and, and ensure that she goes to the best of the schools in the country. So we, whatever way we do it, we just wanted to ensure that. And I think that was one of the things that we thought as a family. Second, I think balancing your work with family becomes very, very important because your work cannot be everything. So to me, I think whole my life, I've ensured that I, I might not be able to give time to my friends at times, but I definitely ensure that I give time to my family. So work and family to me go hand in hand. And I think if you're able to devote time to your family, to your wife, to your kid, to your, along with the work, that, that balance is very, very important. And I think to me, that has gone very much hand in hand, Jeremy, all my life. I think that's the interesting part, which is to talk about making sure that you have that time and balance between work and family. So what advice would you give to founders who are thinking about planning a family or for parents who are thinking about becoming a founder? These are two different questions. So the first question is parents who want to become a founder. So my advice to them is be ready for the tough ride for sure. Startup is not a bed of roses. Be ready to bootstrap till you can get the funding. You have to bootstrap for a few months, possibly even at times for a year. So be ready for the tough ride. That was my advice. Ensure that your family is comfortable with the tough ride and ensure that you know you have a bit of money to, to take care of or until if your wife is working, that's great. But have that conversation to ensure that you are able to do that. Be ready for a tough ride for one or two years at least. I've been in the tough ride for the last four years. In spite of one successful exit, I can say that last four years, from scaling up, meetings, be ready to slog 14 to 16 hours a week, sorry, 16 hours a day, which means at times you might have to slog 90 hours a week. Beyond those 90 hours a week, if you've got some whatever left hours that you have, do ensure that you spend that hour with your family and give them a priority above anything else in life. Possibly because you're spending 16 hours for yourself, if you've got eight hours, can you give two hours extra to your family out of that? So that to me is, is number one advice. Parents who want to become founders. And so what is the second question? Founders who want to become parents. So founders who want to become parents, I think definitely go for it. I'll say you know, there's no happiness in the world having your own kid. Sometimes I, I see people, they delay having kid because they think, okay, when I will become successful, when I'm settled, when I make more money, I'll have a kid. But 
the definition of making more money never ends. The definition of, of success never ends, right? Because you make a million dollars, do you want to make 10? 10, do you want to make 20? So there's no end to, to, to do that. My suggestion is that if you really want, if you love, love kids like I do, go for it. It adds a lot of fun to your life. And to a large extent, it also helps you to switch off. So when people, they go and play with animals, dogs, sometimes they have cats, sometimes they have dogs, it helps them to switch off. But having your own kid also helps you to switch off in a big way. Also, it, it does add to more responsibilities. But life without responsibilities, again, is meaningless. Amazing. So wrapping things up here, if you could travel back 10 years in time, all the way back to 2011, what advice would you give yourself back then? I think if I would have been uh, in 2000, back in 2011, I would have sacrificed more of my salary to get shares. When I made my first exit, Jeremy, I remember that every one person mattered a lot. Because when you make an exit, that's where you understand. Whether it's an IPO, you sell it to somebody else, but every one person matters. So I, I just wish I should have taken more salary cut because I had that confidence that I will anyways recover later on because I can build the company, I can create a lot of cash, I can take bonus if I can't take that. But that extra percentage matters a lot. So fight for shares. Don't only fight for salary. Yeah, so that is to, my, to me the biggest advice. And I think I as a founder, also believe in minimum dilution. I'm not somebody who will dilute the company just like that. I'm very cautious of, of course, I like scalability, but I'm very cautious of my own dilution. Of course, I want to give it to the employees. That's very, very important. But do you really want to raise beyond what you want to raise? Sometimes I see founders raising more than what they need to raise. Because somebody is giving you money, you raise, you dilute, and later on you realize, why did I, did I dilute so much? So this is what I would have done in 2011. And that lessons have stayed with me. So that's one of the reasons I've become very cautious of my dilution. I really raise when I really need to raise. Amazing. So I'd like to summarize three big themes I got from this. The first is thank you so much for sharing about your journey from Nielsen to founding Neurosensum and SurveySensum and talking about those different transition points. The second one is thank you for sharing how you made a decision to get from point A to point B, right? Whichever that was, which was, you know, how you got the courage to move and change uh, and talk to your boss, talk to your wife about leaving Nielsen, as well as thinking about why you're building Neurosensum, but also how you went on to build SurveySensum as well. So it's just really interesting to hear your thought process for each of those stages. And lastly, thank you so much for this unexpected but very joyful conversation about parenthood and being a founder, because it's a tough trade-off that a lot of folks are thinking about all the time. And so I think it's really good to hear your advice that children are happiness and if you want to have children, then just go for it. And I agree with you quite a bit. So thank you so much, Raji, for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Thanks for inviting. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to be on your show. I loved every moment of it. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.